We're going to finish up. We kind of left off in chapter 14. I want to finish that up and then roll into chapter 15. But not all of it. Um, and then we're going to take a break from Sunday school until the second Sunday in September. And then we'll just pick up where we left off again, okay? All right. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll uh, pick it back up in verse 19 where they left Paul um, for dead after stoning him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of eternal life we have through Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints, the privilege and responsibility we have to meet together. May we grow in grace and knowledge this day. Prepare your people as they are preparing to gather for service in an hour, uh, that all would be edified and that you would be glorified above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Acts 14. Remember verse 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had, many, had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. We'll stop there for now. Okay, now, obviously, as we've been studying this for I don't know how many months, um, God has been pouring out his spirit through um, various persecutions that uh, began back in Jerusalem. It's where the church was birthed. Um, Christians have spread to Samaria. They've spread out through Judea to northern Galilee, beyond Antioch um, and Syria and to Cyprus and uh, what we would call Turkey into Asia Minor. So it's in these places that God has been drawing to himself hundreds, if not thousands at this time, um, of true genuine believers who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So this number of believers outside of Jerusalem, okay, at this point in time, is outweighing the number of believers, Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem. And it's not just about numbers, really. Um, But if you think about it, for the first time ever in redemptive history, at this point, there are more Gentiles in the kingdom of God than there are Jews. And and, and that's a pivotal moment in redemptive history. And we're going to see something interesting related to that um, later in the text into chapter 15. Uh, But here now, uh, the missionary journey of Paul 
we know that through it, that evangelism's not enough. Amen? Evangelism's not enough. There must be teaching. There must be encouragement from the word. There must be a building up um, in the faith. This is the model that we see. Um, this is why Paul established local churches. You know, wherever the Holy Spirit led him, he just didn't preach the gospel and then take off. Because the local church is the place that believers gather together um, to, to get a, a dependable diet of spiritual food. That's why churches that all they do is an evangelistic message, that's not enough. The church means what? Called out ones. Yes, they hear the gospel. Yes, we proclaim the gospel. Uh, but there's also Christian fellowship within the church. So courageously, the missionaries returned to the very cities where their lives had been in danger. It's no wonder later on, in chapter 15 and verse 26, we read that the reputation of these men is that they, quote, risk their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this was an, now remember, they've been persecuted. They proclaim the gospel. They've established churches. They've been persecuted, pushed out, and, and they come back. So Paul and Barnabas, as they moved through this, were obviously not thinking of themselves, but the Christians who needed spiritual help, they needed spiritual guidance. Um, they were at this point 160 miles from, only 160 miles from Paul's home um, in Tarsus. But you notice here, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't stop by at home. As a matter of fact, on the trip back to Antioch, they bypassed Cyprus. And who was from there? Barnabas. So Paul and, and Barnabas, their focus was to appoint elders in the churches and they were on a diligent uh, missionary journey here. They apparently selected the best candidates according to qualification, according to qualification from these churches. This is the way church government ought to be. Um, Paul did not ordain leaders until his return trip to these churches. So he went and preached. The church was established because the church is established where there's a gathering of people who are born again of the Spirit. And uh, he most certainly wanted here to give these men a chance to be tested. You know, after all, he did warn in 1 Timothy 5, lay hands suddenly on no man. That was the warning. So as we review this first missionary journey, you can see the basic principles Paul followed as he sought to carry the gospel um, to the known world, for the most part, um, the place where Paul focused to begin with were major cities. He didn't hunker down in some little country village. He would go to, to, to where the mass populace was. He would preach and he would teach, typically in the synagogues. That's where he would begin. Um, that was his strategy in evangelism. And when uh, there were converts, they then would reach out to the smaller regions around these uh, great pla places of... Uh, of greater population. So his ministry was, was not a one-man affair. He wasn't a one-man show. He had men with him. They preached. They taught. They made disciples. And then, you know, what surely was in his mind that you can do a lot more work through 100 converts than one man can in any one place. So here's the model we see. And Paul knew that 
you know, missionaries such as himself um, eventually have to make themselves dispensable. Um, that's the goal of ministry. Everybody's, everyone's replaceable, and you always want to be preparing for the long run to replace yourself um, in the areas in which you're gifted. So that's a great model for us as well. Um, so he went on. He, he continued on. He and Barnabas, um, his team, they would go and they would preach, they would teach, they would disciples, they disciple, they would come back. They would establish leaders in these places. All the while, they're facing persecution. And in 10 years later, in Romans 15, uh, Paul would actually write that uh, the entire area had been, had been evangelized. He preached. There were converts. They established the church. They trained Christians how to do the job, how to carry on the ministry. And that's our purpose, right? We evangelize. We make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Um, and that, that model comes from the book of Acts. So Paul evangelized the Roman world. He's in the process of doing that. And he did it you know, without a printing press. He did it without a radio station. He did it without TV. He did it without airplanes. And uh, obviously, if we're to look at this, we, we have to realize that to whom much is given, what? Much is required. Much is required. You know, and I've said before, uh, you know, people might ask, well, why do you have to go all the way to, you know, Africa? There's plenty to do here. Yeah, there's plenty to do here, but we have all kinds of resources. We have a solid church here. There's many solid churches. There's many churches that aren't so solid. Um, but we go down there because they don't have that. So we go down and we train pastors to be better uh, pastors and leaders and equippers and so on. Okay, so here's the model that we see. We see this um, established and being established here in the first century. So let's pick up here in Acts 15. Now, he's already said in chapter 14 that uh, there's going to be much conflict. You know, there's going to be all kinds of, of, of opposition as the gospel is declared. We get to chapter 15, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses conflict. Everywhere they go, there's conflict. You've noticed that, right? <laughs> conflict has been with us ever since Adam and Eve couldn't agree, you know, why they ate the forbidden fruit. Amen? All the way back to the fall. From there, Cain killed his brother Abel. Joseph's brother sold him off into slavery. Later, David's own son Absalom would try to usurp his own father's authority and try to overthrow his father's throne. Shortly before the Lord's Supper was instituted, remember what the disciples were arguing about? 
Who would be the greatest? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? Who would sit on his right? Who would sit on his left? And to this day, churches and Christians, you know, aren't um, exempt from conflict. The church in the first century, led by the Apostle Paul, um, it's obvious um, that time and time again they're faced with this. You know, many, many spirit-filled servants of God, um, you know, enter the doors of opportunity without so much support sometimes, without a lot of support. And, and Paul and his associates are, are facing that kind of challenge here. You know, the great William Carey, probably told this story before, a uh, great missionary to India, you know, he was, he's full of passion and, and vision for world missions. And uh, he laid his burden for world missions before a ministerial board in Northampton, England. And uh, the, re- the reputed do- uh, Dr. Ryland said to him, young man, sit down. Imagine this, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Yeah, God's sovereign, but we're a means to his end. And that's what William Carey understood. That's what Paul understood. Who, who knew more about the sovereignty of God than Paul? Who is the greater, who's a greater missionary than Paul? He understands both the sovereignty of God and the importance of gospel proclamation in, in building up um, the church. So in courageous fashion, um, these men are facing that, the same kind of challenge. And this is about 20 years now after Pentecost, where we are in Acts. Um, they're defending the true gospel. They're defending the missionary outreach of the gospel. And there's conflict. There's a dispute. And it was caused by some Drew- Jews from Jerusalem. That's where this comes from. They're known as uh, Judaizers. They're saying that Gentile converts had to be circumcised and adhere to the traditions in the law of Moses in order to be Christian. So yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also have to go receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of the old covenant, and obey the law of Moses. Now, even though they seem to be associated with the church, these opposers, with the church at Jerusalem, uh, they were never authorized, that is, they were never recognized as being called to go to Antioch in the first place. If we look at verse uh, 24, chapter 15, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. This order wasn't from us. So they're identified here here with the party of the Pharisees, uh, who are also probably the false brethren um, noted noted by Paul um, in the book of Galatians. You remember that? False brethren. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that certain people came in spying. Okay, They came in spying. They were spying on the preaching of Paul and the freedom, the true freedom in Christ and the gospel that he was proclaiming. And he wanted to bring, or these guys wanted to bring, these converts into slavery again. So he's, Paul is talking about this group. In, in Galatians, this is the group he's talking about that Luke mentions. And Luke calls them in Jerusalem the sect of the Pharisees. So evidently they've been following Paul and Barnabas around. 
Just like the, just like the Pharisees did with Jesus. Following him around, watching, taking notes, being very critical. Critical about the fact, most specifically, that Paul and Barnabas and others have been accepting Gentiles into the faith simply by faith and trust in Christ alone. The gospel. The communion of saints, without asking them to be circumcised, without asking them to obey certain ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, that's what they were wrapped up into. So there's tension, there's this rift, right, growing between the church and Jerusalem, the flagship, if you will. The flagship, church in Jerusalem, and the new church plant, if you like, down in Antioch, or over in Antioch. You know, most church conflicts, uh, most church tension, you know, unless it's straight up false doctrine, is usually driven uh, by personality differences, right? Individuals. Okay, you had James, the Lord's brother. He was the leading figure in Jerusalem. We already know about Paul. We know about Barnabas. I mean, their personalities were different, were they not? They were a team, but they were certainly wired differently. Okay, you have Peter. He's coming into the scene here. And then you have others that that aren't written about here who also would have been part um, of this meeting, of this gathering. And there was likely also around at this point that large number of of, uh, priests who were converted. Remember back in Acts 6? Okay, they're in Jerusalem. Certainly, it's very likely they would have been part of this conversation, this debate, this, this council, really. So this is a time of great transition here. In um, God's plan has made, uh, been made much more clear in the coming of Christ. Everything that was written in the Old Testament, everything that they were familiar with is Jews, Paul rightly understood it's becoming clear. It's obviously, it's obviously become clear to Peter with the vision he was given, with the sheet and all the animals on it. Take up, Peter, kill and eat. And then uh, Peter knew that to understand that there's no division anymore. That was, a, that was a vision of food, that all things are deemed clean now because of Christ. But the, the greater reality of the vision is, is that there's no, there's no distinction to be made now between Jew and Gentile. We're one in Christ. And that's exactly how Peter interpreted that vision as we looked at a couple weeks ago. All of the things in the Old Testament pointed forward to Christ. All the rituals. But here's a group who's holding on to those rituals, who's holding on to the ceremonies with a white knuckle grip and are trying to impress those things upon, enforce those things upon converted um, Gentiles. In other words, they're attempting to pour new wine into ancient brittle wineskins, the wineskins of Judaism. Amen? They were trying to stitch unsh- unshrunk cloth onto an old garment where the, the patch Jesus said will do what? Will tear away. This is what they were trying to do. Jesus laid down those examples in Matthew 9. So they were, in essence, trying to rebuild the wall of separation that Jesus tore down, right, in Ephesians. 
The middle wall of separation has been torn down in Christ. Paul writes about that, makes clear. Um, you know, they're, they're in essence really trying to sew up the veil that separate the holy of holies from the holy place. Trying to sew it back up. Jesus tore it asunder from top to bottom. They're trying to weave it back together. They're trying to lay this heavy yoke of Jewish tradition on the shoulders of these Gentile converts. They're trying to oppress upon them to keep certain laws that they couldn't keep. So they're arguing that converted Gentiles have to become Jewish. It wasn't wasn't sufficient just to trust in Christ. So this is big. This is a huge thing. So as a result, what's at stake here? Very simple. The gospel. The gospel. The fulfillment of the law and prophets. Okay, this is, this is what this brother preached. This is 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul writes, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he has appeared to over 500 brethren. He's the gospel. You must believe this to be saved, Paul would preach. Paul would reiterate. And that's the gospel he preached everywhere he went. Calling, by the way, calling anathema on anyone who would attempt to twist it, to detract, or add to that gospel message. Let him be what? Accursed. If any man preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. This is what they're trying to do. They're preaching another gospel. So not only was the gospel at at risk, Paul's entire missionary movement was at risk. Because what's the thrust and the essence of the the missionary journeys of Paul? The gospel, they go hand in hand. Why have a missionary movement if it's another gospel? This message that was being proclaimed, Paul's message, the gospel message, was in direct opposition to these Pharisees. So if the message was wrong, then the movement's wrong. So this is no small deal. Okay, so in light of all that, verse 6, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. What's the matter? Verse 5, that it was necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's what they're at here. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, okay, imagine now they're going back and forth. It's a debate. You have all these great men together, true converts and then a bunch of religious dudes in a room wherever they were. They're debating. So there's been much debate. And after much debate, Peter stood up. Now that's interesting because here we see growth in Peter. A few years earlier, he wouldn't have waited until the argument was over. 
he would have jumped in. So he, here's some maturity. He, do, he doesn't jump up as has, been, as has been his habit in the past. He listens now before he speaks. And, and he goes on to review the past. And the ministry that God's already performed much earlier than this point right here. So these controversies are actually being raised after the fact. The Lord already made it clear to Peter about Jews and Gentiles. Very clear. That God used Peter originally to open the door to the Gentiles. Right after the vision, right? He was staying with Tanner, uh, Simon the Tanner. He was given a vision that some men will approach you in another town, there's Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and an angel, you know, tells him to send, you know, three men to this place where Peter would be. And then Peter goes and he preaches, and he's the first one to preach to them. So, verse 7, Peter stood up, so a lot of bit of debate, and then Peter stands. And he says, brothers... You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? That's interesting. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice verse 7. Those Gentiles were saved by hearing and believing the gospel. By hearing and believing. Not by obeying the Mosaic law, but hearing and believing. And also, he gave them the Holy Spirit. Lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So God made no distinction, cleansing their hearts as well, just like Peter's heart had been cleansed by faith. So ever since Christ's death on Calvary, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The Jews have for centuries regarded Gentiles as dogs. So you can imagine all the prejudice in their mind as well. And then Peter, having been brought to Christ himself, is standing up and he's saying there's no distinction between us. They're accepted in exactly the same way. They're indwelt with exactly the same Holy Spirit. They were given the same ears to hear, the same hearts to believe. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, therefore. There's neither bond nor free. We're all one in Christ. What the law couldn't do, God did through the gift of his son, who fulfilled the law. So, that's the essence of the message. Verse 12. In all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Peter says, look, man, it started, God started with using me. 
Okay, that baton basically has been handed over to Paul and Barnabas. And they're given a record of everything that's happened in all these places that they've gone. So think about these Jews, these unbelieving Jews, these Pharisees. Okay, Paul's not on their side. Barnabas isn't on their side. Well, Peter just spoke. He's not on their side. Okay, what about James? Okay, James is here. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generation, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You could have heard a pin drop here. This is heavy. James' language here is full of meaning to these Jews. They would be tripping out at this point. So notice he refers to Peter as he's talking to these Jews. And notice the way his name is spelled here, S-I-M-E-O-N, which is the most Hebrew form of his name, speaking to Hebrews, to Jews. So he talks about the Gentiles being called by God, what? A people for his name. They would be steaming. And he's using language that's coming straight out of the Old Testament. Amen? Interesting? Calling people for his name. Putting his name on them. So do you see what he's saying here? He, he, he takes Jewish language and he's applying it to Gentiles. That's why you could hear a pin drop. Gentiles are in the same position as we are as Jews who believe in Jesus. Exactly the same ground and position. So James is reading the Old Testament or citing the Old Testament, quoting it, and he's saying that this promise that is made to Israel is now being applied to all people who are part of the church. And all of a sudden, if you really see this as it is, you know, your breath will be taken away, as theirs most certainly was, because he's saying, now you realize. You must realize. He is equating Israel with the church. The true Israel of God, amen? Jew and Gentile alike, true Israel. They'd have been stunned. So, he declares that, and now he's going to go on and give some basic instruction. Okay, now in light of all of that, okay, rather than having these brothers circumcised, 
Okay, they don't need to do. Rather than have them um, um, obey the ceremonial law that God gave to us under the old covenant, there's no burden of circumcision. There's no yoke of the Mosaic law. But doctrine does lead to duty, amen? So he says, do this. Okay, write to these churches. Okay, write to these Gentile churches. And tell them to avoid idolatry and immorality. Because what was their background? Idolatry and immorality. Typically associated with pagan temples where there was orgies and drunkenness in order to become, uh, to ascend to to these deities. We'll learn about that today. May it be hard to hear in church, but it's in the Bible. Drunken orgies. So he gives two concessions. Number one, he says, look, write them and tell them this. Abstain from sexual immorality and the idolatry that's associated with it. And number two, in order to maintain unity with your Jewish brothers, ask these Gentile believers to forego how they eat food. Okay, they, this is a compromise in certain eating habits, which would have been an offensive expression to a Jew. Certain meats and how they're prepared and so on. So just as Gentiles are not to be bound by Jewish ceremonial laws, Gentiles ought not to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Okay, Paul will talk about that later. It's not a big deal. It doesn't mean anything. But if meat sacrificed to an idol will offend your brother, then don't partake for the sake of your brother. That's all he's saying. So this is not, by the way, some essential Christian duty, but this, this, this was a concession for the sake of the conscience to others for this short season. So Jewish converts who would have still regarded certain food laws or certain food habits, I should say, of the Gentiles, as unlawful and abominable, okay, in the light of that and how they see things, be courteous in how you eat. You know, don't eat your steak rare. <laughs> okay, that was temporary. Is that on you today? Who, who likes their meat well done? That's gross. I have a great friend of mine who only eats well-done meat. You ruined it as far as I'm concerned. Bless your hearts if you do, though. Okay, but anyway, with with those two things, what's missing from the conclusion? There's no demand for circumcision. No demand for circumcision. So the battle's been won. There was conflict. It stirred up a lot of trouble. This isn't just a one-day thing here, right? These guys are actually traveling to have to deal with this a long ways. It's attack on the gospel. So the conclusion is the battle's been won. No circumcision is required for Gentile believers. No ceremonial laws are required for Jews or Gentile believers. So there you have, through the leaders of the early church, by direction of the Holy Spirit, a doctrinal decision 
okay, about salvation, circumcision not required, and a practical decision of how Christians ought to live with one another in this particular time for the sake of not offending one another. Okay, now as a side note, think about this. For my friends and my relatives, having grown up with them, who believe that New Testament baptism replaces Old Testament circumcision. You know, people who baptize babies, that's what they believe, that the New Testament baptism replaces Old Testament circumcision. If that were the case, when this New Testament church debated right here in Jerusalem, okay, they're debating right here in Acts 15, whether or not circumcision should still be required of believers in becoming a Christian, when they become a Christian. It is amazing, it is astonishing, it is actually shocking. Okay, if we're supposed to be baptizing babies that not even once in this entire debate did Paul or Peter or James or anybody say anything about the fact that baptism, look, we don't have to circumcise these guys anymore as a sign of the covenant because baptism replaces it. So instead of circumcising your babies, baptize them as a sign of the covenant. He doesn't even mention it here. If baptism is the simple replacement of circumcision as a sign of the new covenant, and as such, valid for children as well as for adults, as circumcision was. Anyone in your household, if you're Jewish, doesn't matter what age, if they're part of your household, they need to be circumcised. If that were the case, this would have been the time to declare it. To develop and define the argument to show that circumcision is no longer necessary because we have this new sign, it's baptism. For all babies who are born into the covenant family. And perhaps Peter would have been given another vision. He was given a vision about food, right? Which pointed to something greater than food, right? It pointed to the fact that there's no longer Jew or Gentile. We're one. He could have given him a vision about baptism to make it super clear because to defend baby baptism in the Bible, you've got to jump through so many hoops and hop on so many trampolines. It's so complicated that it really doesn't make any sense as far as I'm concerned. And I've tried to have theologians and pastors of my past prove to me through scripture where, where that transfer is seen. Man, you, I, I, I'm confused. New covenant baptism is for those who have been born again. That's why we don't baptize babies. If they ha- would, have, would have laid it out right here, then, then I'd be holding babies and sprinkling them on the head every time one was born into the covenant family here. (laughs) Sorry. But even so, 
when it comes to doctrinal disputes, we must learn to submit to God's word rather than our own traditions, rather than our own opinions, or even our own preferences. Amen? Anyway, that's, we're going to have to stop there. Conflict, huh? Remember what Paul said in verse 22 of chapter 14. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And man, did they face tribulation. And they persevered with the truth. Paul wasn't willing to to submit himself to the traditions of men or even the ceremonial laws of the old covenant to lay them upon the shoulders of Gentiles who God was converting by grace through faith. And they paid for it, didn't they? But rewarded greatly by Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for our time, and we thank you for the ministry of Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, John, all the, all the apostles, Lord, uh, the converts uh, that were made by the proclamation of the same gospel, your gospel, uh, from that day forward um, to our own day here as recipients of gospel grace, atoned for by the blood of Christ. Um, declared as righteous in your sight. We thank you that there's no um, law that, that is added, Lord, to save us, but an abiding relationship um, with you by power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we follow and we are led according to your Spirit, which is always according to your word, Lord, that brings glory to you and, and, and reflects your very nature. So help us, Lord, to, to do so by the power of the Spirit, not in our own might nor strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.